Hello, listeners. Eddie Louise here, writer and co-producer of The Tales of Sage and Savant. When I started writing this story, I envisioned it as a mashup of Frankenstein and Quantum Leap. What I ended up with was not quite gothic and horror-steeped as the former, and not quite as sunny and optimistic as the latter. The consequence is a climax that might be traumatic for some of you. What I also didn't envision when I started writing four years ago is that the climactic final episodes would come out during a period of global pandemic and self-quarantine. So here is my content warning. There is a steep mountain to climb for my characters, and though I'm confident it will all work out for them, I'm not going to lie, there are tears ahead. If the real world is just too bleak right now, and you prefer happiness and hopefulness in the media you consume, I understand. Go listen to Oz9 or Tone Deaf, a theater nerd's guide, or hit me up on Twitter for a host of great shows you can listen to in these dark days. Sage and Savant will be here when you are ready. For the rest of you, buckle in, because chickens are coming home to roost, and it is time to pay the piper. Greetings and welcome to the audio etheric transmission, The Tales of Sage and Savant. Our tale stars Eddie Louise as Dr. Petronella Sage, Chip Michael as Professor Erasmus Savant, Emily Riley Pyatt as Mix Abigail Entwistle, and myself, Justin Bremer, as your humble narrator. Special guest star this episode is Kareem Cronfley as Dr. Victor Sims. If you want to learn more of the stories of Sage and Savant and the reasons why I record these broadcasts, you can pick up our book Transmigrations, available on our website and everywhere books are sold. If you like our show and would like to help us do what we do, go to patreon.com slash sageandsavant and become a supporter. This month's program, entitled Up in Smoke, is sponsored by Twin Star Studios and features the music of The Clockwork Dolls. And now, without further ado, we bring you the tales of Sage and Savant. As you know, dear listeners, things have been, well, tangled. 
When last you received the dispatch, I was otherwise occupied in tracking the movements of Julio, April, and Mix Entwistle, whilst Lucy gave you some insight into our process and the many fragmentary files we pieced together to form this narrative. It is frustrating to not be able to clue you in on everything I know, but as we are fairly sure that these broadcasts are being tracked... In other news, we believe we have identified the first instance of timeline instability and have been tracking other instances of this with the expert help of Mix Entwistle. Newsboy Strike 1899. Abigail has been traveling back and forth, comparing the record in the original Edison files to our electronic versions and making note of the discrepancies. Yep. Found one, Lucy. Mark it. The 1899 strike was successful. The youths were able to force the Titans to revise their pay processes. Um, the next one is about prohibition. It was enacted in 1920 and was still in full force when the doctor visited New York in 1928. And your records say... Yep. Mark this one, too. Is it just me, or is the contamination spread in? It is not just you. The effects seem to be spreading from one moment to the nearest connected moment, like ripples in a pool. But I thought all time was linear, like the marks on a measuring tape or, or pages of a calendar. Time, as best we understand it, is an infinite plane with each moment standing in individual space. When one moment is changed, the resulting shockwaves can alter the surrounding moments as well. So, has transmigration been causing these disruptions from the beginning? We had not presumed so. Transmigrationists occupy the bodies of those who have already died. They do not change the action of those people. And to date, the doctor has been careful not to change the path of history. The history she knows. But what about the history she doesn't? What about the future? Just because something was not written about in history books or committed to memory by academia does not mean it didn't happen. What methodology could there possibly be for tracking such change? Our mechanical methods are not sufficient to this task, as new memories overwrite the old ones in my neural pathways. And though I have archived versions of my memories for each and every day of my existence, I cannot access them randomly as you humans are capable of doing. Abigail's memory is more flexible than a computer's, but it is still a limited human resource. She has been skipping back and forth with a memorized list of dates and happenings and then working to manually match those up with current records. Each and every anomaly that is found adds to a growing list that Lucy cross-checks against her archived memories. It is a very arduous task. The assassination of Archduke Ferdinand, 1914. I have it. 22nd December. No, that's not right. According to Dr. Sage, the Archduke was assassinated on the 28th of June, 1914. Does that make everything in your memory banks between the end of June and the 22nd of December of that year an anomaly? A potential anomaly, yes. I have thought of a better metaphor to help you understand. Once humans rejected the cosmological constant and began to envision bubble universes, the notion of a linear time became a laughable naivete. If all of space is contained in expanding mass of bubbles, stacked one atop the other touching, but not intersecting, then it is reasonable to theorize that time is the same. So we could change one moment and it would have no effect on another. We can change one moment and have no real way to predict if or how it will change the moments around it. 
We certainly cannot change the entire mass of time with a single action. But if this is true, why are the anomalies a problem? It is not the individual blemishes of the timeline that create difficulties for us, but the cumulative weight of the many changes that threatens to change our time. We believe Les Rétitons is calculating the precise number of changes they will need to put on the timeline to fundamentally change the shape of the present. Well, that is just ridiculous. The sheer mathematics required to produce a desirable result are beyond human scope in my time, and I cannot believe your own time can have advanced so far. Yes, the scale of the problem is indeed beyond human intellect. But Ralph and myself are not the only quantum AI systems in existence. Oh, I hadn't even considered mechanical help. Ada Lovelace had no idea the wonders she was giving birth to. <sighs> that is everything I can remember. What time is it? The time is now 5.43.22.07 p.m. NIST F2. Thanks. My recall will sound in about 15 minutes then. I'd better return to my chamber. And so Abigail goes home. Though it will be many days in her own time before she can return to us, here it is just a few moments before she and Lucy resume the laborious combing through the records. Whilst they concentrate on that process, I return to the primary objective of reporting on the doctor's progress. April has arrived, and with that the day Sage must stand and deliver if she is to achieve her goal of becoming a fellow at King's College. Good morning, Pat. Oh, thank God. Erasmus, I'm about to go mad and Abigail is not here. Ah, is she still away in the future? Yes, again, and her creatures will not be silent. Do you know what has them ruffled up? No, they have food, they have water. This racket has been going on for an hour now and I can't think. Maybe they just need some fresh air. It is spring, after all, and they might be feeling... Feeling a bit frisky. Uh, let me fetch a ladder and roll back the panes. Are you ready for your defense, my dear? No! Yes. Well, as ready as I can possibly be to stand before the regions and explain that I've discovered time travel. If you meet the topic head on and present with all your verve and confidence you have practiced, they will be deep into equations before they realize the implications. That will keep the scoffing to a minimum. It would be easier if they were not lurking on that bench, anticipating any mistake or misstep that can be used to discredit me. You're giving them too much credit, pet. Ish is not Cunningham, and he has already benefited greatly from your limb reattachment work. I'm sure you have nothing more to fear than any other doctor on the cusp of being made fellow. You know I shan't be granted a fellowship today. Not until the Society agrees to publish my paper, which will be at least another month. Oh, um... Uh, I, I know, but if you do well today, they will... Surely. There. Uh, well, when you do well today, the regents will surely voice their approval and confidence that your work will be accepted at the society. How could they not? I mean, your work is precise, exacting, and overly well-researched. You've dotted every I, crossed every T, and done enough redundant tests to prove your hypothesis ten times over. You are right. Thank you, my love. Right. Good. Perhaps we should recall Abigail to give her time to dress and prepare. She said she did not wish to miss your defense. 
Whilst the professor recalls Abigail, the doctor puts the finishing touches on her toilette. She winds her short, growing-in copper curls into pretty twists leading back from her temples and secures them at the crown of her head with a pearl comb. She toys with attaching the fully-dressed hairpiece Abigail had suggested, and then decides she will just let her scandalously short hair speak for itself. After all, a scientist should not be judged on their ability to follow fashion. She dusts her face with powder and applies the tiniest amount of rouge to her cheeks and lips. She dons pearl and sapphire ear bobs and gives herself a last critical look in the dressing table mirror. The curls at the back of her head stand out in a corona, and the light of the morning sun gilds them, framing her visage in a rose-gold halo. Angelic. <laughs> you are only saying that because you know I have died. Multiple times, my dear, and your own sweet face becomes more dear to me each time we return to it. Abigail is taking a quick shower and will be ready in just a few moments. I came in to see if I could help. I can easily slip out of my plus fours without you. Oh, but where is the fun in that? Besides, I thought you might wish my help in lacing your corset. <laughs> I suppose I could use your help, but I shall require you on your oath to be good. You can count on me. With only a little caressing, teasing, and kissing, they managed to remove the rational plus fours and shirt. Then the doctor dressed in chemise, corset, shirtwaist of the finest white lawn, and a puff-sleeved bodice and skirt of fine bombazine in a deep blue trimmed in dove gray. University colors. The final touch is her university tartan tie in blue and gray secured by the sunburst crest of a doctor of medicine and philosophy. Are you about ready, Dr. Sage? We really should be getting down. Yes, I'm ready. As ready as I'll ever be. Oh my, you look splendid. Oh, I have your portfolio and your notes here. Professor, can you grab the data charts in the easel, please? Abigail, can I just say thank you? If not for you, well, suffice it to say that none of this would have been possible without you. Oh no, Doctor. The science is all you. You know that isn't true. But beyond that, your cool head and steadying hand on this enterprise is a large part of the reason I'm even still here to make my defense at all. I owe you and Erasmus a great deal. You've both been constant friends, the voice of my conscience, the foil for my thoughts, and the companions of my heart on this journey. Whatever happens today, I'm grateful for you both. Oh, really, Pat? You are welcome, though there really was no need. What we mostly did was stand by in awe of you. <laughs> All the same, thank you. <sighs> now... Onward to the lion's den. And so the doctor will present her work to the medical establishment. How will they respond to learning that death is no barrier to science? We'll find out after this short musical break. And now, dear friends, we invite you to listen to the talented melodical expressions of the Clockwork Dolls.
And now, back to our story. When we left our doctor, she was preparing to stand and deliver a defense for her paper on the practical applications of transmigration for temporal displacement through the auspices of electromagnetism. Her 500-page paper had been printed and bound into leather folios, and the five jurors, along with the chair, Dr. McNeish, had been presented with said folios one week prior. If all went well, this exact paper could be immediately presented for consideration to the Academy, Dr. Sage would be made fellow, and finally achieve the goal she had been working towards for over a decade. It did not go well. Her defense was being held in the same room in which, just four short years before, she had faced the tribunal which had brought Le Chargé de la Faire into her life and graced her with a research budget larger than her wildest dreams. In that instance, the appearance of a mysterious stranger had provided miraculous rescue from certain disaster. If Petronella were to be honest, she would have to admit that she hadn't at all helped her case on that day by being imperious, headstrong, and demanding. She had allowed her peak at the male hegemony to overwhelm her training. Today, there would be no last-minute rescue, no mysterious organization with deep pockets to provide the university with concrete reasons to support her science. Today, everything rested on the shoulders of her research and on her presentation of such. I must say, my dear, that you look positively collegiate this morning. Well done. Except my hair. I probably should have put on the hairpiece as Abigail suggested. And be distracted by the itch, weight, and heat of it. Oh, no. I'm convinced you made the right choice. Abigail and I made your excuses for you all through the college these last six months. It's well known you've been ill. Let them believe you are shorn for medical reasons. I was shorn for medical reasons. <laughs> well, quite right, that. Uh, you see? No reason to worry about your hair. Beside the point, I'm quite fond of your sweet girlish curls. They help disguise your nature. <laughs> quite enough of that. Thank you. Two minutes until the defense of Dr. Petronella Sage of the practical applications of transmigration for temporal displacement through the auspices of electromagnetism. Two minutes. Please take your seats. That is my call, Pet. Uh, shall I sit down front for moral support or hide in the back to ease your nerves? In the end, the professor had no choice but to sit near the back. Abigail had saved him a seat, but by the time she had arrived, the room was already nearly full, buzzing with excitement. Word of our doctor's unique subject had gotten out. Goodness. A medical and physics fellowship defenses usually this well attended? In history, we're lucky to see half a dozen in the audience. Oh, no, this is not usual at all. One of the invigilators must have let slip Petra's topic. I know for a fact she only invited the two of us. Sage entered the room and crossed to stand at the bench. Twelve feet in front of her, the imposing judges platform dominated. Six tall red velvet chairs with turned filials of darkest walnut bore the six men who would decide her fate. The time is 11 a.m., 1st April, 1897. Petition of fellowship by Dr. Petronella Sage. 
Invigilators are Dr. Henry McNeish, Surgeon, Fellow, Provost. Dr. Victor Sims, Fellow. Dr. Horace Montgomery, Fellow. Dr. James McPherson, Surgeon, Fellow. Dr. Henry Johnson, Surgeon, Fellow. And Dr. Colin Wells, Fellow. Dr. Sage will be defending her paper. The Practical Applications of Transmigration for Temporal Displacement Through the Auspices of Electromagnetism. Secretary Mansfield Porter will scribe this defense for the record. Begin. Esteemed colleagues of King's College, doctors, fellows, my Lord Provost, thank you for your attention today as we discuss the practical applications of transmigration for temporal displacement through the auspices of electromagnetism. In the course of my defense today, I shall demonstrate my process for separating the conscious state from the corporeal and sending that consciousness through space and time to inhabit such forms as are available. This is a process I have named transmigration in honor of the theosophists who first theorized the potential movement of the soul without the encumbrance of a body. Quiet! Whisht! will maintain a strict silence until the floor has been opened for questions. Failure to comply will lead to removal. <sighs> Continue, Dr. Sage. Continue she did. Dr. Sage outlined the complete process of transmigration, detailing the evolving nature of her studies, the modifications to equipment, the strengthening ability to pinpoint exact time and location. She talked for nearly four hours before she had completely explained the science and its application. Thank you, Dr. Sage. Due to the very nature of your claims the Fellowship Panel feels, it is incumbent on us to... We don't believe you. I I'm sorry, Dr. Sims? We don't believe you. Your maths is correct, your physics right on paper, but then you make fantastic claims to what these equations actually achieve. It reads like complete hocus-pocus, and I, for one, refuse to stand another minute of this defense unless you show me how it works, not just theoretically. Dr. Sage. Are you prepared to defend your thesis with a practical demonstration or no? Of course, but physical demonstration usually comes after the thesis is successfully defended. You say my equations are correct on paper. Does that not mean that you pass me through as fellow nominant to the society, and then we progress to physical demonstrations? You are correct in the usual. But it is highly unusual for an applicant to come before the panel claiming to have discovered time travel. In the end, after Petra had explained that in order to make her proof, she would need to take back the laboratory that had been changed to surgical last year, it was agreed to suspend the defense for two weeks whilst equipment was set up and a testing protocol agreed upon. It was a messy and uncomfortable process, as every day, new demands from the panel arrived. Petra and Abigail supervised workmen, building a transmigration apparatus for two from scratch. I still don't understand why we don't simply take them upstairs. Your laboratory is a marvel and would be a real credit to this university. Don't you think you'd be forgiven for hiding it once they see the wonders you've invented? Unfortunately. 
Fortunately, Abigail, the world is not as forgiving and generous as you are. If these men knew that I'd been working in such luxury all along when they believed they'd confined me to theoretical space only? No. It would be better to clear away all evidence that we've already occupied the space and then have Les Chargés de l'Affaire presented as a shiny new gift to the medical department after granting me a fellowship. Is that why you've been removing your records and personal items? Yes. I have finally wrenched control of the townhouse and staff from my mother, and I felt it was time I learned to live as a human rather than a laboratory rat. I can store the Edison cylinders and journals at my home and release them to the college once the fellowship is secured and my place in the society established. Erasmus says he can have everything personal out by the weekend. That will leave only the menagerie. Do you think you could move the animals? Of course. Will all this be ready by tomorrow's demonstration? Yes, I believe so. We can, of course, use our existing Faraday armor and CRAP helmets. And though I am quite proud of my automatic controls and instrument console upstairs, those things are mostly for convenience. For purposes of this demonstration, I believe that the fellows will feel more comfortable if there is a human at the controls. And you really think sending the test to the Viking bodies in the Great Forest is the most advisable course? Erasmus does. He argued for inhabiting bodies that we knew the damage of, but were not around other people for the first trip. In this way, I can demonstrate the space before demonstrating time, as it were. And so you enter those bodies just a minute or two before you did originally. Allow a couple of minutes to pass. And then recall pulls you out before you and the professor are due to arrive. Yes. So that might convince Sims, but what of the remaining panel? What if they all want a demonstration as well? Then we think we might have to resort to something drastic, like a battlefield or a plague ship. Ooh, I don't like the sounds of that. Neither do I. Let's hope that a single demonstration will be enough. I will take Sims to Viking times, and then, if he's satisfied by where we go in space, I will take him back in time to somewhere recognizable. The Sun King's court, perhaps? I envy Dr. Sims, actually. Oh? Why? Because he will have his first taste of transmigration with a guide. He will know what to expect in advance, and when it all feels fantastical and strange, he will have you by his side to explain and soothe his fears. I really did wrong by you, Abigail. I'm sorry. No, that's all right. I understand why you didn't tell me. Max Cunning would have had you out on your ear. And I really do think what you have discovered is marvelous and will change the world. I have long forgiven you. I just wonder. Wonder what? If I would enjoy travel more, if I'd had a more gentle introduction to it. I wish I could somehow retroactively grant you that. Unfortunately, our peculiar method of time travel does not allow one to return to the scene of one's crimes and change the outcome. <laughs> Can you imagine? You show up to meet a man dressed as a workman, perhaps, <laughs> and try to convince a young and rather prim incipient doctor that he is the person her provost has tasked her with watching. <laughs> oh, by the way, time travel exists, and you must change bodies to take advantage of it. <laughs> <laughs> I concede your point. If wishes were horses at all. There. I think that has done it. Do you think you can sound the recall chimes manually? Would it be terrible to have the professor do it? 
He's much better at achieving a clear tone than I. With everything in readiness, messages were sent for the panel and Professor Savant to adjourn to the laboratory first thing in the morning for the first working demonstration of her research to an outsider. Hello, Pat, uh, Dr. Sage. Uh, big day today. Uh, how can I help? Hello, Professor. Uh, we really only had time to set up two induction tables, and if anyone should bear the burden of escorting an uninitiated person through time and space, it should be me. I simply need to explain everything to the panel, and then we'll be off. Abigail did want you to be in charge of ringing the prayer bowl for recall, however. She says you achieve better tones. Right then. Gentlemen? First, the doctor walked the men through the mechanical setup of the induction table, the dynamos, and the leads connecting to the cranial reticulation analog plexus helmets and Faraday armor. And you willingly channel over 180 amperes of electricity onto your chest. Yes, but as I explained, the Faraday armor disperses that almost immediately into a nimbus state. But it is still enough voltage to knock you, did? Technically. But that too is momentary. The electricity will unmoor your consciousness, yes. But your body will continue to function. Like the engine of a horseless carriage can continue to run even if the driver steps out of the automobile. And what happens to your body while you're not in it? Nothing. Or rather, nothing bad. It will continue to recline here until you return to it and awaken again. I see. So each trip must be short enough that the body you leave behind does not suffer from hunger or thirst or a, a need for, um, evacuation. Oh no, the doctor has invented a rather ingenious method allowing for- Yes, as Abigail was saying, I do have methods for dealing with such things. But as you suggest, Dr. Sims, today's journey shall be a short enough one that your form will not thirst, hunger, nor need to evacuate whilst we are gone. Now, if there are no further questions, I suggest you don your Faraday armor. And so, with step-by-step -step explanations, Sage walks these men, who control her future as a fellow at King's College, through the process that has become almost automatic. Abigail distributes protective goggles to the assembled and herds them all, excepting the professor, behind the protection of a hastily erected Faraday cage. Professor Swant, I should advise you to step back with us. Oh, it's quite all right, my good man. The doctor has prepared me. Savant pulls aside his collar to reveal that he is wearing Faraday armor under his clothes. Abba, Mix Entwistle is likewise protected. She shall manage the dials and amplitude. I shall man the recall. The doctor straps Sims into place, secures herself, and nods to Abigail. Though there is no automatic system here, the Cladney is set to the right pitch, the dynamo is whirling at peak efficiency, and the equipment is operating at optimum performance. Wait! That's a great deal of electricity. Victor, you will be fine. Trust me. But I don't. I distinctly do not trust you, Petronilla. And with the crash of blue lightning that always accompanies their journey, Doctors Sims and Sage are sent on their journey into the past. We will take advantage of the pause to share a word from our sponsor.
Hello, listeners. Chip Michael here, co-producer, sound engineer, and composer for the Tales of Sage and Savant. Making this show has been both challenge and delight for four years. We've learned so much and come so far. We're grateful to each and every one of you that took the journey with us. As you may have gathered, there isn't a lot of money in producing audio drama, and though we have been fortunate to have some sponsors for the majority of our episodes, we haven't come near to paying expenses. This is where our fans can help out. We have books, t-shirts, and stickers available on our website, and every purchase allows us to make more stories, pay our performers, purchase needed equipment, and keep this whole house of cards standing. In addition to supporting us by buying merch, you can join our Patreon, donate to writer Eddie Louise's coffee, or purchase some of our music on Bandcamp. We here at Twin Star Studios really love making art for you. We hope that when you can spare it, you'll take a moment to throw a little cash our way so that we can continue to bring you high-quality stories like Sage and Savant. And if you find yourself cash-strapped at the moment, don't worry. Help us out by reviewing us on iTunes or Podchaser and by recommending us to your friends. Thanks. And now, back to our show. When our travelers awoke in the New World Forest... Dr. Sims! Victor! Victor, look at me! Victor, I am sorry. Look at me. Stay with me. Who are you? Who are you, son? I am not a savage. I am Dr. Petronella Sage, in the form of a Viking woman... Oh. You, you're a big, hairy, brutal man, whilst I am a refined, a, a refined... I'm sorry. I didn't think to prepare you. The last time we were here, Erasmus was in the body of the man, and I was in the woman I had just assumed. I wonder if the choice of bodies is somehow glandular. No, that makes no sense. My glands are in the far future from this time. I shall need to ask Erasmus if he's willing to try this experiment to see if we can identify any pattern to how our consciousnesses choose a form. All right, Dr. Sims. We probably only have a minute left before the recall brings us back to King's. Can you look around? Make any observations? Sage quickly unbuckles and dashes to the side of the other doctor. You've killed them! It's all right. He's simply passed out. Victor, wake up! Victor, we are home! (laughs) Spells, cheese, memories! Dr. Sage, whatever have you done to that poor man? I didn't do anything. Simply took him to a place and time I had been before. The New World, Great Forest, circa 11th century. I don't know why he's going on in such a manner. Dr. Sims? Victor! Look at me. We are home at King's. Home. (gasps) What was that? What's going on? There is a message attached. Transmigration for the people. Free Dr. Sage's research. The past and the future should be ours to explore. Publish now or else. 
It's not signed, but there is a small drawing of a smashed mantle clock in the lower right-hand corner. Let's arrange it all. Look here. I have no idea what has just happened, but I'm suspending all research on this so-called transmigration until we can get to the bottom of this. Dr. Sage, hand over your laboratory keys. Montgomery, Wells, take Sims to the infirmary. It is an unmitigated disaster. A very dejected Petra dresses in her plus fours and locks the laboratory doors on her dreams. They will see reason once Sims calms down enough to explain. I don't know about that. Sims did not appreciate being a female. I'm sorry, Sims was in a female form. Did the trajectory not bring you back to the same two bodies? It did, but this time I was you. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> I would have paid to see his face. Some people are way too hung up on their gender. <laughs> it was rather comical. He kept clutching his chest in agony, never noticed the grapefruit-sized contusion on his forehead. I realize I've taken you two for granted. You are both such even-killed personalities, and I just didn't realize how much your embracing of the process had smoothed the path of my research. Thank you. No, Petra. Thank you. After all, if you hadn't drugged me along on these wild adventures, I might never have discovered my true calling as a veterinarian. But enough of this defeatist talk. Your research is sound, and I am sure the university will come around once they've all had a good think. By this time next year, I imagine that upper laboratory will be expanded to hold as many as a dozen induction tables, an entire fleet of young doctors monitoring them. But for now, I think the two of you should go home and get some sleep. You should rest too, Abigail. Oh, I will. But first, I'm going to get the menagerie moved to animal husbandry. That way, everything is clean and clear for when Dr. McNeish creates a department for you. It is a tired but resolute Abigail that sets about preparing her friends for transport. Come here, Bojangles, you minx. Did you know we have a fine female stoat in the menagerie downstairs? I have been meaning to introduce you. Charlie, slide down off your rafter. There's a good boy. Your pretty green feathers are going to look fantastic in the aviary. All the lady folks will be eyeing you up. Beauregard? Bo, don't you hop away from me now. In her element, Abigail did not notice time passing, nor the smell of smoke that was drifting up the stair until it was too late. Do you folks smell that? I'm going to check where that smoke is coming from. No, the fireplace is not lit, and the braziers are all cold. The kitchen is fine, the shower. Oh, there is smoke coming up the drain. Abigail runs for the stairs, but the smoke is thick in the stairwell. She pulls her hand into her sleeve and places it over her mouth and nose, running down the stair at a breakneck pace. The wall which hides the entrance is incredibly hot to the touch, and she can hear the roar of flames on the other side. No, 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 no! She runs to the windows to look out. The entire history wing below her is alight. Columns of sparks and smoke wend upwards like the tendrils of some terrible beast taking a ship down from below. Think, Abigail, think. 
The elevator shaft is sealed and the second floor is on fire anyway. There's no roof access. My creatures! Fighting against the clock, Abigail works to free her creatures. She retrieves the ladder and opens the sliding roof panel. She uses her belt knife to slice open the screen and then climbs down to choose animals to release onto the roof. Those that can fly are first through, followed by those that can scamper and might have some chance of leaping into the nearby trees for egress. Fly, Mirabelle! <laughs> Run, Bojangles! Beauregards! What can I do for you and your reptilian brethren? <laughs> Abigail strips off her clothing, placing everything but her chemise into the bottom of a basket to create padding. Then she loads the bowl full of her cold-blooded friends, tightens the lid in place, hauls the cumbersome thing up the ladder, and shoves it out onto the glass roof. She thrusts the basket away down the slope of the roof, watching until it disappears off the edge. The night is cacophonous with the clanging of alarm bells, the clattering of fire wagons, and the wailing of hand-cranked sirens. The smoke is filling the laboratory and the fire has breached the stair. Abigail tears a strip of her petticoat loose and ties it over her mouth and nose, but it might be too little too late. She looks around, searching for any creature left behind. Her eyes fall on the fish tanks and great tears spill down her cheeks. There is nothing she will be able to do to save them. She is about to collapse when she realizes that Charlie, the Eclectus Parrot, is once again cowering in his favorite spot in the rafters. Charlie! Charlie, you need to fly away! Please! Fly! Please, Charlie! Don't... Don't die here! Charlie... I can't breathe. I, I don't... I haven't... I have lost the telesensation connection. I... I am sorry. The Tales of Sage and Savant is a Twin Star production and brought to you on the first of each month from our Southern California studios. Starring Eddie Louise as Sage, Chip Michael as Savant, Emily Riley Pyatt as Abigail, and Justin Bremer as the narrator. Our guest star this episode was Kareem Cronfley. Find more of his work on What's the Frequency and the Audio Drama Hub podcast. Soundtrack music, sound design, and audio engineering by Chip Michael. The theme song for season four was interpreted and recorded by Victor and the Bully. Special music in this episode was provided by the Clockwork Dolls. Check them out at theclockworkdolls.com. Episode 409, Up in Smoke, was written by Eddie Louise. And check out our website, sageandsavant.com, to find the facts behind the fiction. If you like our show and would like to help us do what we do, go to patreon.com sageandsavant and become a supporter. And finally, as always, we urge you to remember... No, I'm sorry. 
We urge you simply to hold your loved ones close and never take for granted the blessed moments you share.